lock the door behind you. Uh, make sure that towel is properly positioned. You're walking in on another $5 buzz. My name is George Kursar. As always, we're joined by Pete Liska out in Los Angeles. How's it going tonight, Pete? It's going well, man. I'm looking forward to uh, tasting some wine. Yeah, we're going to be tasting some wine tonight. It's a kind of cocktails and dreams theme. We've got two wine experts uh, with us. We have Terry Rogers, who's the owner of Harbor Point Wines and Spirits here in Stamford, Connecticut. How are you, Terry? Great. Hi, Terry. Hi. <laughs> nice and windy outside, you know? Windy outside and windy inside. And we really appreciate you participating in this tonight. Thank you very much. That's and great. Thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me. Sure. And out on the other on the other side of the world, I'll say aloha to Mr. Wine himself, Brian Clancy. Uh, how are you tonight? Doing fantastic. Happy to be here. Excited to uh, taste some juice with you guys and talk a little bit about the East Coast. Brian, uh, I just wanted to tell give the listeners uh, a couple of quick stories about. You know, the first time I was in Maui with you, uh, you were working at a spot called Mr. Wine. But uh, what I remember most is there are three things. Number one, we hung out at a bar. I believe it was it in Lahaina called the Mongoose. Is that yes, still the, an operation? the Sly Mongoose, as it were. <laughs> and what how would you describe that that uh, operation? I, I believe that uh, there aren't any windows, George, and uh, and I think the jukebox only plays the Rolling Stones. And let's just say that uh, the wines we're tasting today wouldn't be served at the old Sly Mongoose. It's more of a Bud Light and Jaeger type of a place, but, uh, you know, good class of people. Yeah, and I also recall we went to a, there was a party, I think it was Valentine's Day, and everyone that was participating wasn't out at a romantic dinner uh with their significant other so we were hanging out drinking and one of the guys at the party i don't know if you remember this brian his name was tom thayer he was a rookie who played for the 1985 chicago bears do you remember hanging out with him that night yeah yeah i, I vaguely remember that i believe that was over at debbie john's uh house uh, in mahina hina and uh we we you know all the solo people on valentine's day it's like uh you know, wayward drifter Christmas uh, when it comes to those kinds of parties. You know, everybody just kind of, you know, tags together, um, you know, keep the bed warm. <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Mr. Thayer was definitely there. He's a great guy. Yeah, yeah. He's still calling games on the radio for the Bears. As sure is. Yeah. Uh, and lastly, Brian, uh, we went out to a restaurant you may recall called Roy's. Do you remember that? I think what are your Yeah, you know, I, I spent about six years of my uh, my time out here. It's been 23 years in Hawaii now for me. Wow. Six of them was spent uh, working as a busboy slash server slash manager slash wine director uh, with the Roy's Corporation. So yeah, a lot of fun to be had in those places as well. And I just bring that up because the first date that I had with my wife in Manhattan was at Roy's. And uh, something must have went right because she's still with me. That was in 2007, Brian. So uh, thanks for introducing me to Roy's. And uh, I just wanted to, to turn it back over to Terry. And it, the interesting thing is that the both of you are uh, in the wine industry. But interesting also is that you both are originally from the same part of upstate New York. So Terry, um, you know, could you just tell us a little bit about, you know, growing up in the Adirondacks and kind of how you got into um, wine and, you know, where, how you ended up in Connecticut from Manhattan and before that the capital region and the Adirondacks. 
this all happened about a year ago, right? (laughs) (laughs) I all uh, just got in the car one day and uh, hit all these spots and uh, ended up here. What can I tell you? Um, Now, the uh, um, living in the Adirondacks, um, still a little further north than, than Clifton Park, and it was a town of 250 people. And I got to give credit to my, uh, my parents that uh, pretty much owned the town. Um, so I got my business sense, I guess, by watching them run the diner in the town, run the gas station, run the Tamarack Playhouse th- Theater where Kirk Douglas played. Um, my father was the superintendent of highways, the supervisor, bought and sold real estate. We owned racehorses, so we were at Saratoga all the time. And then my mother had a, a little liquor store about the size of a shoebox at the bottom of our driveway, right on the main road. And she had a little button and you'd drive up to the store and the door would be locked and you'd press the button and mother would come running down the hill. And as I got running down the hill and let the person in, um, in the wintertime, the store was closed, but because it was summer was when everybody was there. Summer, it went from 250 people to 2,500. Mm-hmm. Ergo, the DeSico Lake and the campsites and everyone that owned homes on the lake. They, uh, I believe there was a little golf tournament there called the Higgins Bay Open, if memory serves. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> my grandmother's house. And at night, after all the golfers were gone, I would go out to the little pond on the first hole and dig around and get all the golf balls that were in the pond. So it was a, an interesting childhood of, you know, not really knowing what the wine world was all about until I got into um, a little bit of a larger town called Albany, New York. When I got to Albany, New York, I was introduced to finer restaurants, uh, not only just frozen uh, frog's legs um, and frozen whatever, but uh, some good food and some good wine. So I, I really enjoyed wines and I joined Les Amis de Van, the wine club back then, and took Hugh Johnson's pocket, pocket encyclopedia guide out. And that's still, a, um, that's still a classic. Hugh Johnson's pocket encyclopedia guide is still the classic. And I went to the, the closest store that had a good selection of wine, and I picked different varietals, took them home, and laid them out, and started to taste varietals and get a chance to figure out what I really liked and what the nuances were per varietal per country. And back then, there really weren't that much wines coming from California. There really weren't many uh, great standards that we all know yet. Um, <coughs> It was just Inglenook and Colony and Petri and uh, a lot of the a lot of the norms. But you had Blue Nun and you had Lancers Rosé, and so I cut my teeth on uh, all of those uh, classics, as you might say, Bola Suave, you know. and uh, from uh, from there, I went from Albany to Manhattan. And in Manhattan, I needed... That was a pretty big jump from... It was very big. It was yeah. very big, but I yeah. was up for it. Yeah. I was up for it. Um, 
said, okay, you know, let's try it. Got to have a job. And uh, I like wines. Thought I knew something about wines. No, wrong. No. Um, and I sent resumes out to 12 different companies. And one of the companies, the United Dinners Division, which was a company that was based in California. It was a direct operation. was starting a fine wine company. And they said, we have had really good luck with people just writing in and really not having any interest in any reason to be, you know, with whomever in the restaurant business or whatever. So we, we, we'd love to take advantage of basically your innocence and bring you in and teach you and pull you along. And I started a territory right, walking in the streets of New York in 1978. Now, for the listeners at home, Terry, can you shade the background a little bit about what New York City was like in that time? It well, wasn't so like- uh, In 1978, it was basically, you stayed in Midtown. Um, if, if you went north, uh, you wouldn't go past, mm, you, you could go up to 86th Street, you'd go mm -hmm. up to Germantown, but you wouldn't go anywhere near um, past 90, nowhere at all. And if you were down in Avenue A or B, now the East Village, which is Lower driving, East Side, yeah. driving yeah. now, um, you needed a gun. This was the, the days of CDGB <laughs> in Axis, Kansas City, correct? Limelight. Yep, the limelight. <laughs> you, needed, uh, you needed a gun down there. Right. And that, uh, that was not the place to be. So you had to pick and choose where to go. Um, my my was dad crazy. was an EMT in the city in 1977 and 1978, actually. Wow. He's told me some pretty crazy stories as well. I bet. Um, Terry, that's pretty fascinating. Uh, if I have, to, if I had, if you had to pick one, I mean, one kind of wine experience or one type of wine or one thing that changed you and, and really put you on the path you're in, I mean, I, I, given your, your experience growing up with that, with the liquor store at the bottom of the driveway, that's pretty, that's, that's, that's built into you as from, from childhood. And I get that, but is there, is there a moment or a, or a time you can re recall where yeah. it what was, what was the one, the one wine that you, really, it, it, it unlocked it for you, so to speak. There was a restaurant in Manhattan uh, called Caliban. And the owner of that restaurant would buy fine wines and he would put them in his cellar and wouldn't take them out until they were ready to drink. He wouldn't put them on the wine list. Alex Bespaloff, who was a, a wine writer at the time and wrote for the New York Times, had always written him up as being one of the finest restaurants for wine lists in New York. And I had an occasion to, when I was there, because I went there a lot, to share a magnum of Domaine Romani Conti 1955 Grand, um, what am I thinking of? Um, not, not Latash, um, Grand Echezo. And wow. is that a Bordeaux? I don't, I don't, I'm not. Is Domaine that, Romani Conti? That is, what, is it a red wine? the finest burgundy house uh, really um so wow. domain romani conti oberta valain's the owner and the domain is the most expensive burgundy you can find other than wow. his uh his 
cousin who is uh, Madame Bislewa. Uh, she was part owner of the domain and uh, her family still is part owner of the domain. But wow. to have a 1955 Grande Chiseau out of Magnum put me um, into wine heaven. Wow. And <laughs> Do I dare ask what that's valued at? I mean, a bottle like that? Oh, now that that's a $15,000 bottle. I was going to say in the 20 range, yeah, for a mag, wow. you know, bonkers. Wow. Yeah. That wine doesn't what exist a, anymore. Was, it doesn't? <laughs> I wouldn't say so. You know, not a 55. That's crazy. Wow. That I had that experience. Wow. Well, that's really amazing. Yeah, um, fast forward wow. quickly because um, I'll, I'll tell you just quickly. Um, I was at Aubert de Valaine, the owner of Domain Romani Conti. I was at his home as a guest for dinner with another couple in 1990. And he wow. served wines and he said, what is in that glass? I had not had a sniff of a Grande Chiseau since that time in 78 or 79. I put my nose in the glass and I said, this is Grande Chiseau. You know, wow. Said, yes, it is. Do those mark the only two times you've ever had it? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> Terry's a baller, man. Terry's a baller. That is that is an amazing, amazing, amazing story. Wow. Guys, before we uh, sip some wine here, and, uh, you know, I want to get uh, Brian involved here. Um, Terry, just as it relates to New York City, could you uh, – two things – can you tell us what it was like being a woman, uh, as you said, selling to the street uh, in those days? And also, you mentioned one of the restaurants that you covered uh, was yeah. Spark Steakhouse. And obviously, most uh, listeners know Spark Steakhouse from um, the John Gotti and Sammy the Bull Gravano um, hit on uh, Paul Castellano. With <laughs> That's the right. Active <laughs> um, changing of the guard in the... Uh, Italian-American mafia in New York City. So um, I don't want to say too much. I'd rather hear it from you. But... Well, first walking in the streets of New York as one of the only women, you walk into a store and you either get the, I don't want to see a woman because women are taking jobs away from men. You either get that reaction or you got the reaction, well, she's, from not, she's not from around here. <laughs> can tell my accent, my upstate accent. And uh, then uh, they didn't want to give you the time of day. And then if they did want to give you the time of day, um, it was only because they had something else on their mind. So what you had to do was you had to convince them that you were serious, that what you had to taste for them was something that could help them for their consumers and that you could also make them a profit. So you had to, and that, that, and that you knew what you were talking about. So you basically had three extra steps to do before the usual Joe would walk in and say, how you doing, Sam? You know, let me send you the three cases that you told me I could send you tomorrow. Yeah, go ahead, send it. Um, my job was a little bit more difficult. Yeah, absolutely. So pounding the pavement day after day after day. Um, Spark, Spark Steakhouse, when I was calling on Pat Seta. He was one of the owners and he was, he was the buyer. I was working for a company called uh, Trebone and I was working on producing a wine called Bellini, Pinot Grigio, Chardonnay and, and Cabernet. 
And during that time, I was selling Angelo Gaia 1961 Barbaresco to Spark Steakhouse for $250 a case. Wow. So I would sell. Um, Inexpensive and, then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would sell that, a case of 61 Gaia Barbaresco or a couple, whatever, because it was still in, in good supply. Was, no one really knew it. No one really knew Italian wines. And I'd go there for dinner with a couple other people, and I'd order a bottle of 61 Gaia Barbaresco, affordable on the list at that point. Um, and then Pat would just bring another bottle over and put it on the table on him. Here, Terry. Here's wow. a bottle for you, on, on us for you. That's awesome. Well, there are a lot of those colorful characters around the John Gotti uh, type individuals. Were they out in the open, or was that just a unique situation? Um, no, they, 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 were, they were there, um, but it was really also a, um, a great steakhouse for mm-hmm. a lot of the, the Wall Street people yep. or the Midtown. Is it still open? And hedge fund guys. I believe so. I've been there once or twice. It's been a couple of years, but, uh, you know, it, I, I'd be, uh, you know, I know a lot of the restaurants in Manhattan are probably struggling right now, but I would assume that Sparks is still around. One thing that comes to mind. Sorry to hear that. Well, one thing that comes to mind is that in my limited experience in New York City, I, I was a bartender there for a while, but I recall that the, the liquor supply companies really consolidated and it's more, it's much more of a monopoly now. There's only like two of them. I think one of them is named Peerless and there's another one. And it seems to me there might have been more opportunity back then to have a, a boutique either shop or supply or supply i mean how are like how are these guys it, basically it's all about getting the deal from the vineyard in europe i would imagine for the for the importing rights not to get it too caught up in the minutiae of it all but it, it seems to me that there's a lot more of a monopoly on that type of thing now than there may have i would been. call it more of a homogenization pete um, yeah where when you're talking about a three-tier system like we have in the United States where you have a supplier that's making the wine, you have a distributor, that's me, that's distributing the wine, and you have a consumer, Terry, that's carrying the wine and retailing it or a restaurant that's selling it uh, to you you and George. That's the three tiers. As we get bigger and bigger in that middle section, like my company, RNBC, we're the Mm -hmm. second largest in the United States right behind Southern Glazers. Even those companies are gobbling each other up. So you're 100% correct in the fact that it is creating, I, I wouldn't say monopolies, but a homogenization or just kind of a sameness. Those mm-hmm. little companies that have the ability to pivot and do like really cool things from Austria or you know survive on a category that's just funky Italian wines, they're fewer and fewer these days. Um, yeah. So yeah, it is it is a bummer, you know. So if you want to go ahead and start a company out here in Hawaii, just let me know. I just need the million dollar backer to start things gotcha. off. <laughs> good, good, good. To know. Should, should we have a glass and then Brian, we could talk about your journey from uh, Clifton Park uh, via <laughs> via the yeah. small town of Potsdam out there in hundred uh, percent foothills. Yeah, I just want to say real quick, you know, to what Terry was saying, that those are some amazing stories. And she's mentioning a couple of houses like DRC and Gaia. I was the Gaia ambassador for Hawaii and got a chance to go to Chicago and spend time with Gaia, Gaia. That's Angelo Gaia's daughter. Amazing trip. So, you know, those those are near and dear to my heart, both of those wineries there. 
But yeah, let's get something in the glass for folks, George. Um, what we have to start off is two different Sauvignon Blancs, one from the Loire Valley in France. Uh, that's the Michel Red Sancerre. And then the other is the Craggy Range uh, Sauvignon Blanc from uh, Martinborough, which is the North Island of New Zealand. And the reason that I wanted to taste these side by side was to show the differentiation between New World wines and Old World wines. Old World being the continental European wines, the old school, basically. And then New World being anything but. So New Zealand being the representative for New World here. So it is Sauvignon Blanc. I would start off with the Old World and then have a sip of the New World. See what you think uh, between the two and kind of kick it from there. Sure. So uh, one thing one thing I want to say about Sauvignon Blanc in general, I you know, I've, I love a crisp kind of like on the, on the more like a tart, like grapefruity side yep. of Sauvignon Blancs in the summertime. To me, that's one of the best types 100%. of wine you could have. I mean, in have. Hawaii, especially Pete, this is like our number one varietal out here year round. It just flies and it cranks yeah. and a lot of New Zealand SB, obviously, cause we're pretty close to New Zealand. We do oh, direct yeah. shipment from them. So it doesn't have to go to the mainland first. It's a great way to keep, uh, keep it oh, super, super wow. fresh for us. Uh, and, Justin and I had a chance to go down and spend some time there. It was an amazing experience, wow. but um, kicking things off. Let's just chat about the Sancerre real quick. Terry, you want to talk about it at all? Well, Sancerre is, um, <clears throat> it's a town and it's one of the uh, larger areas in the Loire Valley. The um, whole region of where the Loire sits with Sancerre, Cancy, Puy Pome, they're all Sauvignon Blancs that have just a little bit different consistencies. Sancerre, from a consumer standpoint, has always been the one area in the Loire Valley that people gravitate to. They know the name and they just come in and they ask for a Sancerre. They actually don't know that it's Sauvignon Blanc. 100%. I find the exact same thing out here as well. Um, and you really find that, I, I don't know if it's just easy to say for people, but it's one of those areas in France that they're not intimidated by. And then you add on to the fact that it's this super light, crisp, clean wine like Pete's talking about, makes it super easy to drink. It's almost like squeezing lemon on the top of your fish. You know, you get a fish yes. fry along with this, boom, you know, super high acid, really fun, a little bit of chalk and kind of slatiness in the background too. Very pretty wine, you know, and for the most part, affordable. What are we talking? Mid twenties, mid thirties for the most part on them, yeah, you know, really, really good value. You've you got a very good value. Uh, Sancerre is the one, the one region that did go up in, um, in a price point in the last couple of years. It, it took increases more than any of the other regions in the Loire Valley. That's what we've noticed. But the consumer has absorbed those prices without a problem because they want something that says Sancerre. And yeah. they'll try this one, and then they'll try another one. But they'll pay attention. They'll pay attention. But they still don't know that it's Sauvignon Blanc. So when come, someone comes into the store, I'd like a cold Sauvignon Blanc. Oh, would you like something from California? Or would you like something from France? Um, I always leave New Zealand at the end because I know they're always going to say New Zealand. Yep. <laughs> so I give them the opportunity to at least show a little knowledge. Give somebody first. else a chance. <laughs> give somebody else a chance. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. So real quick, just go ahead and make sure you're tasting this, uh, this Sancerre up front. Pete, I know we're going to skip you on this one, bro, but you know, okay. we'll wrap back around. 
Yeah. Hey guys, I'm lucky enough to have Terry educated me that I'm going to try this crab cake from a local restaurant here called, well, it's from a uh, virtual food hall called Flavorism. And one of the dishes love it. there is shellfish and sancerre. It's the way to go, man. Yeah. This is like your classic oyster wine right here, too. If you're not having champagne, of course. I love oysters. Man. <laughs> Just love them. Good. There's a third thing that goes with those two things, Pete. I don't know if you. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, just touching base on what Terry was saying as well, you got to remember when you're talking about French wines, you're always going to have the region. It's not going to say Sauvignon Blanc on the front, right? That's the way old world wines do things. They mention where the wine's from, they expect you to know what actually grows there, okay? So, for mm-hmm. Sancerre, um, it's about 70 to 80% white wine that gets grown there and, and, you know, Sauvignon Blanc for the most part. The red wine is Pinot Noir from there. And they make some great rosés out of Pinot Noir in the region, but not a lot of them escape France themselves. They get consumed domestically. Interesting. Do you guys have a, I mean, do you have a, um, do you dismiss a, a certain region for its, for its Sauvignon Blanc say, does California, is California in the conversation or could there be a good Sauvignon Blanc from Northern California? No, and, and that's one of the main points I wanted to make with the with the Chardonnay. Some people just say, I don't like Chardonnay. One of the reasons I, I wanted to do this next flight is because Chablis is going to show you a different style of Chardonnay. I try and make it a general rule to never dismiss anything. Yeah. Um, and it, it also might be because it, I could be selling it next week, you know, before <laughs> trading of our industry, who knows. Yeah. But um, I think it's important to go ahead and, you know, never have a closed mind on, on an area or a varietal even, um, give them all a try. You know, if you don't like a certain wine, Hey, you don't like it. That's cool. Yeah. You know, I, I don't yeah. like all wine out there either. You know? Yeah. I, I honestly recently, I mean, in the last few years have taken a liking to some certain Chardonnays I've been exposed to that are a fantastic. So, I mean, yeah. you're right. You know, you can't just say, I don't like Merlot or whatever you know yeah. you don't know you know <laughs> petrus is one of the greatest wines on the planet it's yeah. all merlot pretty much <laughs> yeah well brian can you can you give us a uh education here about the new world and you know how recent or how long has new zealand kind of been in the conversation uh in this uh particular yeah world? hundred percent here in Hawaii, you know, we tend to trend a little bit behind the the mainland, but with New Zealand specifically, I think we were right on the curve, to be honest with you. So when New Zealand SB kind of hit the market, that's my early years at Pacific Cafe. So pretty much right when I moved out here, talking about 22 years ago, um, the company Babbage was a big one that kind of like launched on the scene. It was very inexpensive. The thing about New Zealand Sauv Blancs are they tend to be very, very high toned and, and, you know, have a, almost like a pyrazine kind of note to them, smell like green bell pepper. Um, so we, we can go ahead and move into the craggy range. Pete, you got the dog point there from Marlboro oh, yeah. as well. Um, when you smell this yeah. wine versus the Sancerre, what you're going to notice is you're going to smell fruit first as opposed to the Sancerre, which you smell a little bit more earth and slate first. So with old world wines, you tend to get minerality out of the wine first. With new world wines, you tend to get more of a ripeness and fruit component first, right? So with Craggy Range, this one kind of bucks the trend a little bit. We're actually in Martinborough with this selection. Martinborough is on the North Island of New Zealand. It's the Southern part of the North Island. 
most of the Sauvignon Blancs from that region are from Marlborough. That's actually the southern island, the northern part, right? So when Jessica and I had a chance to go down there, we flew into Auckland and then down to the South Island to a place called Blenheim. And, uh, and that's where um, a lot of the Marlborough Sauv Blancs come from. Was it a, lot, was it a flight, yep. just real quick, was that a flight from, from, uh, from the capital to there? Or yeah, was the yeah basically, Pete, you fly into Auckland first, and then you're mm. taking puddle jumpers to Christchurch oh, wow. or Blenheim or wherever else you want to go. What a trip. Um, but yeah, uh, Hawaiian Airlines just goes straight down. It's about a nine-hour flight straight south. Um, with Martinboro, it's a little bit more of a, a hand-harvested uh, region whereas Marlboro is a little bit more mass production. Um, and so you tend to get a little bit more of a more concentrated fruit component with Craggy Range. I really love this winery. It represents New Zealand very well. So your point, Pete, a lot of people will just write off New Zealand Sauv Blanc because it's like cheap and some of them are almost offensively peppery and green bell mm -hmm. pepper notes. But when you get ones of this quality like Dog Point or Craggy Range, oh, these are badass wines, man. Yeah, really fantastic, fantastic quality level. You know, yeah. Pete's going to reload us here. Uh, while he's doing that, Brian, um, can you give us a little uh, story? Can you give the listeners a backstory about your journey to Hawaii and your journey to uh, the wine industry? You and I have known each other uh, scarily since we were teenagers back in 1995 up in Potsdam, but uh, similar to... Terry, you grew up uh, just outside the Adirondack region uh, and the capital region, New York State, uh, Clifton Park. So can you tell us how it all started? Sure, sure. Yeah. Be before, um, before we do that, am, am I on the right path here, Frank, family, and you, you uh, St. Martin? I, yes, I'm going to double glass. I like it. All the stories happening, and I'm going to let these breathe for a second. I like it. I like it. Yeah, George. Um, so, you know, coming out of uh, the Clifton Park region as a high schooler going to uh, Shenandoah, um, I was uh, I was, you know, found myself heading up to SUNY Potsdam as as the rest of us did. And, um, you know, put in uh, a solid three years up there in the north country, um, you know, 45 minutes south of Ottawa, negative 20 with the wind chill. And uh, after the, the last year up there, we went to a, a winter room and the power went out for 13 days. I, I don't know if you guys storm. recall that. It was an ice storm. Yep. I was yeah, an ice very, storm. Very vividly. Yeah. And Bill Clinton actually declared our area a national state of disaster. Mm -hmm. um, it, so much ice was on the power lines, they snapped. Right. So I kicked around the idea, just kind of threw it out there by the fireplace, drinking too many, you know, Bud Lights with the boys saying, hey, my, my brother Dan, he lives in Maui. We should all go there and thaw out this summer. And by that May, nine of us had plane tickets. Actually, 10 if you include the fried dog. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my so, God, Friedman. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's, an, that's another topic. So we all ended up coming out on a, on a vacation. Thank you, and, Pardon me? It was 1998, correct? This is Yes, correct. Correct. And we came out on a summer vacation just to put in, you know, a couple of months, you know, get some <laughs> busboy positions and, and whatnot. And, you know, just enough to kind of pay the rent and then head back um, at the end of summer. And summer hasn't ended yet. So, you know, 23 years later, I'm still here. Four of us ended up staying long term. Two of us are still here to this day, myself and Philip Robb. 
Um, Phil Robb hasn't even left the area of Maui Meadows for these 23 years. I've at least spent two years on the Big Island, eight years on Oahu. This is my (laughs) second stint back on Maui. So a little, uh, a little different in, in that regard, but it's been an amazing experience. And, and as far as the wine industry is concerned, when you live in Hawaii, there's really only one thing that you can do, and that's working with tourism uh, and in the hospitality industry, right? Um, and I started as a busboy at a restaurant called Pacific Cafe in Kihei, worked my way up to food runner, to expediter, to cocktail server, opened my first bottle of wine at that restaurant at, uh, you know, 21, 22 years old, ended up managing that restaurant by the end, and then starting my career with Roy's, uh, opened up the Roy's in Kihei um, as a floor manager and then wine director for the Kahana Bar and Grill. So it just kind of took off like that. I actually split off from the restaurant biz and ran the, the store you mentioned earlier, George, called Mr. Wine in Lahaina. I ran that for three years as the general manager and wine buyer. So I had restaurant buying experience and retail buying experience at that point. And then I was called to the Big Island to run the Mauna Kea Beach Hotel's uh, fine wine program for the reopening of that rock resort. So I had hotel buying at that point. Brian, am I remembering this correctly? Was uh, Neil Young staying over there? Yeah, Mr. Young, actually going back to Valentine's Day, uh, he came in with his wife and, uh, and I took care of them. He was a homeowner right around the corner on the Big Island and uh, a great guy. Really, really cool. Yeah. And was, um, was am I making this up, was Anthony Kiedis there too from the Red Hot Chili? I, I don't recall if a Red Hot Chili Pepper made an appearance or not, actually, <laughs> you know. Um, but there, let's just say, you know, I was hanging out with Terry Bradshaw earlier this week and we were regaling tales about him playing some golf at my hotel over there. Uh, the cast of the characters were long and distinguished. You know, Alice any, Cooper that, made some appearances. It's is good there time. in particular that sticks out that the audience might really uh, get a kick out of hearing? Uh, you know, with, with the Big Island in general, it was just, you know, working at that kind of a hotel was just pretty amazing. Um, the cast of the characters was, was long, you know, there was all sorts of people coming in and out of that place. Um, but you know, not, not any one thing off the top of my head. It's more about just the experience of living out here in general in Hawaii and being able to, to see those types of folks, uh, right now, for instance, on Maui, Joe Torrey has been spending a lot of time in our world and, uh, you know, we're happy to have him. Um, but you know, those celebrities come and go all the way through. Um, with the wine industry now, you know, I've been in the distribution side for uh, a little over 10 years, working with uh, the Johnson Brothers folks at first and now with RNDC, um, certified sommelier. Uh, so I've, I've passed the second level and I'm, I'm blind tasting to get my advanced SOM next. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a lot of work. man. That's amazing. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, too. Um, so the team that I work for now, there's only seven of us in the state. And I handle the entire island of Maui. So it's, uh, it's a hell of a lot of fun. Um, it's a lot of work, too. But, yeah, it's, it's pretty fun. No surprise, um, man. No that's, surprise. That's, no your personality, dude. No, we're, we're, I'm very happy for you. I know we I got, are. Really awesome. Dan Clancy gave me the gift of gab at a young age. So, <laughs> you know, I can sell ice to an Eskimo, as it were. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's pretty much, you know, catching us up to now in a, in a real quick footnote for the most part. Excellent, man. And Brian, you were saying that um, obviously tourism is very important to uh, all things related to Hawaii. Can you just give the audience a little bit of uh, what you're seeing in terms of return to normality 
sure. that relates to, uh, you know, obviously I've, I've been lucky enough to go to Hawaii three times. I think I've been there, but, mm -hmm. uh, what would you tell someone who's never been there? Um, what they could expect, you know, going into the, uh, post COVID era. Sure. Now that we're kind of through the looking glass with COVID, we're on March 1st here right now. Um, people are getting vaccinated. People are getting a little bit more comfortable traveling. The, the doors are definitely opening up a bit more. Each of the islands, you have to have to have to remember this. Each island has its own county and its own rules, guys. Okay, so if you're going to come, make sure that you're picking the right island to go to. Oahu is different than Maui, is different than Kauai, is different than Big Island. So make sure you double check for any kind of flights and stuff like that so that you're paying attention to the right set of COVID rules. Gotcha. Um, but for the most part, they're getting loosened and you should be able to get out there and have some fun. The great thing about Hawaii, 90% of the stuff you're going to want to do is outside anyway. You know, yeah. on a golf course, where what better place could you be? A lot of dining is outdoors as well. Yes, of course, wear your mask and be safe about it. But, you know, definitely you can be coming back out here with some sense of, let's call it normalcy for now. 10 months from now, it's going to be really freaking normal. I'll tell you that, you know? Yeah. I love to hear the optimistic outlook, man. I really do. Got to have it, man. You know? Yeah, you have to. I, you know, you, around LA, you you get the sense people are getting fed up, but at the same time, they're doing the right thing. They're just riding it out, getting it done. You know, who knows what's right and what's wrong? And we can debate that all day, but, you know, getting back, the optimistic attitude, getting back to normal is what's key on that. There one. you go. Terry, have you had spent any time in hawaii at all not yet not yet. <laughs> not yet. Well, come on out <laughs> no there's plenty of opportunity out there and no, heck yeah time uh every time i get a chance to go somewhere it's uh definitely for um a winery tour so it's sure california or it's uh france or it's italy um yeah, the Ulapalakua Winery probably isn't going to be handing out any incentive <laughs> tours anytime soon. So, yeah. Is that like uh, the Finger Lakes ice wines? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's they, they make a decent Syrah on occasion up there. A uh, little bit of rosé. We're better at distilling pineapple into vodka. Well, the um, Finger Lake region this summer yeah. had more visitors than they've had in years and years and years because... People traveled by car and they wanted to go upstate New York because they felt it was safer and it was constant. I'm going upstate. I'm going to the Finger Lakes. I'm going to Finger Lakes. So Good. the wineries really got to see a huge influx and also the consumer got to understand what the Finger Lakes region really was all about. And there are some pretty high, highly regarded um, yeah, Constantine, Constantine Frank's got some, some great wines. We carry Dr. Constantine Frank here in Maui, and I really? carry Forge. Forge is amazing, amazing Rieslings. Um, and it's actually the winemaker from there is also the winemaker at a winery called Chateau Saint-Combe in the Rhone Valley in France. They're unbelievable wines. So, yeah, I know you were kind of off the cuff with that one, Pete, but it is <laughs> a world-class wine region. You know, they, there's I'm, some, I'm, some I'm great stuff coming out of there. 
I want to be there in June. My brother's getting married uh, on one of those lakes. I'm not now, sure there, there's also blueberry port wine that you should probably avoid, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> every region has its, you know, winners and losers. <laughs> so with getting to this tasting here, what are we, sure. are we talking about Frank or Chablis first? What are we doing okay, first? so getting back into the uh, the style that we did with the uh, the Sauvignon Blanc, this is going to be a study of Chardonnay here and and really kind of the crux of the reason I wanted to do this tasting was everybody can kind of say, oh, I don't like Chardonnay, right? Because they don't like that big, oaky, buttery cougar juice that was known as California Chardonnay for years and years. That's why I wanted to show Chablis um, as a region and the Domaine La Roche, St. Martin Chablis versus the Clos Duval uh, Carneros Chardonnay. Uh, Pete, you have Frank family, almost the same wine. So um, the differentiation between the two is really important. So let's go ahead and taste the Chablis first, if you don't mind. And George, if you have a food that you're having along with that, you can go ahead and talk about that too. I got some chicken pie yard uh, and, some butternut, squash. and some butternut squash. So uh, we'll give that a uh, sample as well. Salute. So with Domaine La Roche, they are a, a premium producer in the region of Chablis, which is the northern part of Burgundy. Chablis, that term got used in the United States uh, to kind of just say white wine or white table wine back in the day. Franzia still makes a wine called Chablis. It's, it's, it's it got a bad blue. rep. It had a bad rep for a long it, time. Exactly. You kind of looked at Chablis as a lesser than. It's actually a world-class region. And when you're talking about the entry level or the village level of Chablis, nine times out of ten, they're going to be unoaked. Okay, so stainless steel fermentation, very clean. This wine does rest on the lees, so it gets a touch of creaminess to it, but not too much. And it stays very flinty and light on the palate. When you get to the Premier Cru levels, they see some oak, like the Fort Charm or the Val de Vey. Or when you get to the Lake Clos, um, you know, the Grand Cru stuff, holy shit, that's some of the best Chardonnay on the fucking planet. Sorry, I'm getting a little... Uh, oh, amazing. Uh, a little French with my terminology there, <laughs> but with the Chablis here, what, what you're going to really focus on is the cleanness of the wine, a nice structure and a good acidity with the wine all the way through. What do you guys think of that? The vintage that I have here is the 2018. Yeah, I'm on the 18 as well. And I find the 18s from, from all of Bergen to be, to be exceptional. Yeah. Yeah, this is 18 as well. Yeah, it's a firing bottle of wine. And, um, you know, I'm really impressed with it. I love this, like with what you guys are having, the chicken and the, uh, you know, that that kind of richer kind of style. What that acid's going to do is cut through any cream sauces as well. So anything with a Berblanc, lemon butter caper on some fish is a great way to go with this as well. Really pretty wine. Okay. Oh, man, so let's I move over to the California. And once again, we're going old world to new world, correct? Correct. Yeah, I, I always try and taste old world first simply because of the fact that they tend to be a little bit more delicate and less alcohol. With the new world, they're a little bit more massive in style. Um, and then we'll finish with the Riesling in a minute here, and it'll really cleanse your whole palate. Um, but getting into the Clos Duval, what vintage do you have on this one? The vintage is 2018. Perfect, yeah. So my buddy Ted Henry made this wine. Ted came over from Jarvis and took over the winemaking facilities at Clos Duval um, about four years ago now. And it takes that long, that many consecutive years to get to what he actually went from berry to bottle making. 
So this is 100% estate grown and bottled. Claude Duval, also a winery that kind of took a lull there for a while as far as quality was concerned. They made way too much wine. They pared back all of their production to 30,000 cases from about 90,000 cases. So when you're cutting two thirds of your wine out, the other third that's left is going to be really good quality. So I hope that you enjoy this Chardonnay. It's a great representation of what California Chardonnay can be. Brian, um, so this is the estate Chardonnay, which means that um, all of the oh my God, what difference have to come from the estate. They're Correct. From the estate. And it's the Carneros district of Napa Valley, which mm -hmm. is basically the southern area in Napa, a little yep. warmer than if you were up near uh, St. Helena or Calistoga. Mm -hmm. What towns would listeners be familiar with in the southern region? Napa City. Napa City, okay. Napa City okay. has, has yep. just flourished. It is just a boom town. Yeah, there's a Morimoto's there now. It's amazing. So much fun. Morimoto is great. Yeah. It's great. You know, so with Carneros, Terry, like you're saying, the other wineries that kind of hail from there, you know, obviously the Rombauer fans are from that region. Pete, the one that you're having, the Frank family is also Caneros generated. Um, this Clos Duval, though, tends to be a little bit cleaner in style than those other two. It's not quite as much heavy-handed on the oak. with um, Bouchain in Carneros. Oh, I love Greg. He's such a good guy. <laughs> Hugest belt buckles in the world at Bouchain. Yeah. <laughs> Greg Goff. Guys, yeah, he, he's fully like a just a Texas man, you know, 6'5", doesn't take any shit. You know, he's a really good dude. But yeah, I love uh, Ted different. Henry, too. He's, he's a great guy. We've done multiple wine dinners with him here in Hawaii. He loves to come out here. So um, with the Clos Duval red wines, just to let you know, that's going to be 100% of state grown and bottled from the Stag's Leap district. So you probably are familiar with Stag's Leap as, a, as an area. Yeah. Uh, Hirondel is the vineyard site where he sources the Cabernet Sauvignon from for his three graces and his top end stuff world-class uh, showstopper styles of reds. We'll get to that on the next episode when we do some red ones. <laughs> oh, absolutely. For sure. We have to. Um, so just, just off the bat, the Chablis versus the Chardonnay mm -hmm. for me, from my perspective, if I, if I can share, mm -hmm. there seems to be a lot, there seems to be more complexity in the Chardonnay to me. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but there seems to be a lot more going on with this Carneros wine than with the French wine. I don't know if sure. that's, I think what you're probably or... getting, Pete, they're both Chardonnays. With the Chablis, you're getting a very light, very crisp kind of style. Almost mm. would do a benefit to have food with it. With that um, Clos de Val or the Frank family that you're having, it's a total cocktail wine. It's oh. going to be full of that mouthfeel on its own and really is going to kind of dominate your palate. So 100%, if you're just having the two of them yeah. side by side, Boom. And, you know what it, I mean? Like even the color, it's amazing how like it's a the Chablis distinctly lighter than the mm -hmm. um, than the than the than this uh, Carneros. Yeah, situation. and both have huge quality levels, right? They're yeah. they're both right there as far as the quality goes, yeah. and that's what's really one of the things I wanted to point out. There there couldn't be two more diametrically opposed styles of Chardonnay, so you can't say I don't like Chardonnay. You know, you no. you're gonna like one of these two. You know, I, I, I could drink either one of these. I would I would enjoy either one of these. No doubt at any time. I'm strong I'm glad to know about them because going out a lot of times we're in a situation where, you know, 
my wife is 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 getting something and I'm getting something and maybe a red is too too big for for the dish that she's having or or I'm having even sometimes I tend to go for a fish and she'll go for a meat or whatever but this this feels like it would hang hang with like a pork dish or maybe you know even something with a like you 100%. said maybe- yeah I I love big California chardonnays with with pork dishes, especially once you get up to steak, it's kind of tough, right? Yeah, yeah. Pork and chicken, it's it's the way to go for sure. You know, yeah. great, great bottle of wine. Or like an appetizer of like some kind of gamey bird or something, you know, sure. something light, you know. Yeah. Cool, man. Jerry, Love do you it. want to touch base on either of these wines before we move on to that Riesling to kind of wrap up the wine portion of today's tasting? I think an, an, overall, an overall view of the difference between the new world and the, and the old world or France versus versus California is that Burgundy region has always been a mystical region. And the reason why they say that is because from vineyard site to vineyard site, you can have grapes that grow. And because of the minerality and the style of the soil, it's going to taste different in the glass. Yeah, Burgundy I think is, is really important with that. You could be literally two rows apart from each other in Gevry Chambertin and the wine is going to taste completely utterly different. The one thing that's consistent is obviously the quality level through the roof on, on most Burgundy uh, houses for the most part. So Terry, when you say that I'm picturing, I'm picturing like the side of a hill, you're talking about rows, like they're, you know, in the, in some gets a cool air, some doesn't, is that what dictates kind of the, the difference in taste? Sorry. House. So your bathroom is one vineyard and your living room is another vineyard. Yeah. Oh, wow. And so your house is, um, is the area of Chablis and the town in which, um, Chablis is in is in, is the the region is Burgundy, but the area is Chablis and each of those rooms in your house is a different vineyard. Oh wow! Different going on in each of those rooms in the house. Ergo, you have uh, Vion, V-A-I-L-L-O-N-S, Vion in Chablis, going to taste different than Monte de Tenere in Chablis, going to taste different than just the Domaine La Roche, the uh, the regular AOC Chablis that we're, we're drinking here tonight. Yeah. So every, and then you add in Val de Vey, and then you add in the Grand Cruz of Le On There's different smells in the different rooms in your house, and there's different smells in the wine that you're tasting. That's an incredible analogy. That's really awesome. I mean, because it's going to have some familiarity when you go back to it, but when you leave it and come, and then, oh, right. I'm here again. And that that's the kind of nuance that I envy in in wine experts such as yourselves that's got to be one of the greatest things when you when you do revisit a room in someone's house like you're saying and you get that familiarity maybe had a good time with that wine too and that brings back all of that too that's what really does make wine so special isn't it i'll say one more thing about burgundy as well um it's the most complex region as a wine expert that you can kind of say Terry made a point earlier that, um, you know, you, you learn one thing about wine and it actually is going to spurn you to learn 17 more things. It opens up a door that you're like, oh shit, now I have to learn all this stuff as well. 
Burgundy only is two grapes. Well, three if you include Aligote, but two main grapes, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. But every single region inside of Burgundy has a different story to tell. You could spend your entire career just on the Cote d'Or and not Whoa. know everything about it. It's really remarkable. I'd love to um, go someday. I'd love. Oh, to go hey, to I can't there. wait. It's it's a long trip from Hawaii, but at some point, Jessica and I are going to make it there. Yeah. As far as so, as far as like as far as like the, the the regions of the world that make wine, it's one of the most uh, probably distinct and distinguished. It's right. tough to beat. Uh, I mean, yeah. Bordeaux's there, obviously Champagne's there too, but Burgundy is where enophiles and Psalms just geek out to no end about it. It, it gets almost uh, a little bit too much to take. He <laughs> <laughs> walks that fine line. <laughs> yeah. It's like, all right, dude, shut up. Let's go get a Bud Light, you know? <laughs> Love that. <laughs> Every year. So is there, is there, um, can you give us a, uh, a SUNY clip note version of uh, your highlights. <laughs> oh boy, do I have a lot of those. Yeah. Well, something um, you're comfortable sharing with uh, a couple of uh, novices, some, well, two novices at least. Okay, so let me see where to start. Um, oh, well, we might as well, we, we won't start at the, the top top, but um, um, there's a gentleman, um, who is the largest landholder of Burgundy now. Uh, his name is Olivier Lefleve. Does that ring a bell, Brian? I sell his wines to a very few amount of people because Wilson Daniels is very tough to deal with right now, Terry. <laughs> I got a lot of Grand Cru in my warehouse that I'd love to sell, but you got to hit those <laughs> marks, right? You got to buy that rootstock. <laughs> it was the, the black sheep of the family. Mm-hmm. And it was really kind of like the outcast because it's Domaine Lefleur. It was Anne Lefleur that had the Domaine's wine. And right. he made the great, great wines. Um, and then Olivia came along and, and started to make his wines. And um, he his wines were more um, approachable as far as um, the consumer was concerned and the price points were concerned. Well, Olivier... Um, was looking for a wife and decided that I would be a, uh, um, a good, uh, a good match. <laughs> um, and asked me to be his wife and have his children. Oh my gosh. Wow. And I said, uh, I had just started horse neck. Uh, Oh, probably three years earlier. And horse neck is her store. Was, was her store, store in, in Greenwich, Greenwich, Connecticut for 30 years, which must've wow. been a lot of interesting folks. We saw years. everybody. Yeah. We saw everybody, all the top CEOs, hedge funds, winemakers, you name it. Um, and I said to Olivier, no, I can't, I, I, I can't. Um, I've just, I, I, I am, I am someone who wants to create this world at horse neck. And I don't want to be married to a Frenchman. <laughs> Obviously, going to have a mistress because that's kind of like written in the rules. You can do it. You know? it's kind of like everybody knows that's what's going to happen. And I'm not going to be the one stuck at home with the kids. <laughs> Good for you. Too. So I would have been a part of the business, learned French, the whole thing. But I said, Nah, can't do it. Took a pass. Yeah, but to this day we're still friends. Um, he's always, I love you, Terry. I love you, Terry. I love you, Terry. 
some of the greatest wines on the planet from the Lefleb family as well. Um, I mean, that's amazing. Lefleb, you, you were talking about wines that changed your opinion about basically everything, Pete, earlier. Yeah. Um, Domaine Lefleb, Pouligny Montrachet, Les Pucelle, 2004, still resonates as one of those for me. That uh, I think I was selling it for 384 a bottle at at Monacea, and I got one six pack allocated to my hotel. At least five of those bottles were consumed by myself and my wine wow. stewards. <laughs> wow! So we had a pretty big spill sheet uh, those months. Um, but yeah, absolutely life changing wines. Uh, that that'll change you on on anything about Chardonnay for sure. Yeah, the pretty special stuff. The Burgundy producers they love rock and roll. They love rock and roll. Really? Love Rush. Uh-huh. Really? Oh, yeah. That's another fascinating yeah. thing. I mean... And, and, the, and, the, and the rock groups, whether it's Deep Purple or Rush especially, they love... The Canadian Burgundy. rockers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Neil Peart. <laughs> Neil Peart. Neil Peart. Yeah. Is, is he on the kit, George? Yeah. One of the best ever. And it's... You know what I love? One of my favorite things about coming into Terry's store is... It's always classic rock and, you know, Bowie and uh, Black Sabbath and, yeah, Deep Purple. David Cover. You know, that, that's awesome that you do uh, that, Terry. Roger, I've always... Roger Glover was my customer at the horse. And David, David Coverdale, he came in later on, right? And, he, of course, as Brian and Peter, they were big white snake guys. And that's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> later on in life, life. <laughs> um, no, and i've always equated you know certain wines with bands as well and you know you know maynard from tool has his own winery ask, in arizona i, I feel days. a little dorky asking but uh how is arizona in general uh thought of in the wine world and is maynard's wine i've had it i actually found it in westport connecticut you know their quality he's a singer of a band called tool yeah yeah, yeah. okay cool. yeah so yeah. What's your, Their quality. What's your no, no. I mean, when you're when you're talking about New Mexico and when you're talking about Arizona, most people think desert. Okay, that's just what goes into your head because you've seen movies or whatnot. If you haven't been there yourself, there's actually rolling hillsides in both of those states that would look like Sonoma. Their vineyards are absolutely ethereal and gorgeous. So don't be fooled by the fact that yes, it's Arizona or New, or New Mexico. Um, like Gru A make fantastic sparkling wines in New Mexico, some of the best. And their wineries in Albuquerque. Who the hell knew, right? But uh, yeah, with Maynard's wines, he's a little weird because he's using Italian varietals. And I can't stand it when you use Italian grapes from outside of Italy. Why are you doing that kind of a thing? I, I call them Cali towels as well. When you're growing Barbera in, in Santa Barbara, I just don't get it. I wanted to finish with Riesling today. It's how I finish 90% of my tastings when I'm out on the road, uh, including Cabernet and Syrah tastings. I always show Riesling last. Um, Riesling is near and dear to my heart. It's one of my favorite grapes. It's a noble varietal. A lot of people just think of Riesling as passe. It's an afterthought, sweet wine. They, they think it's a beginner intro wine. It's actually one of the most complex wines to kind of master. Um, I speak a little bit of German so I can get away with some of the crazy long Erzsiger Wurzgarten, you know, vineyard sites. Um, the wine that I was talking about uh, today was going to be the Robert Weil uh, Spätlese. Um, I ended up with the Dr. Luz and Blue Slate. Yeah, I mean, Terry's got it there from the Rheingau. What you're going to see in that wine is this bright white peach component and absolute stunning acidity in the background as well. Pete, you got the Dr. Luzen as well lightning quick acidity in the background with the wine 
bright white gummy bear pineapple fruit up front. What you're going to notice coming after those Chardonnays that would probably be on a wine list in the, you know, 80 to $100 a bottle. The Riesling is going to come in much more affordable in style, and it's going to wipe your palate completely clean and just leave you with this really beautiful kind of feel in your mouth. Um, lower in alcohol, typically, you see Rieslings in the 11 to 12%. So they're great for all day at SPAC when you're going to see Tom Petty kill it, <laughs> you know. Um, but I, I just, if I can take one thing out of this tasting today, I, I want more people to drink more Riesling. I really think it's an important grape that kind of gets uh, poo-pooed a bit, let's say. Dude, I love that. I, I have to say, man, I mean, Riesling does get a bad rap for being a sweet wine or like, you know, dismissed as 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 a good wine but uh in my towards the end of my time at tony's in in a Times square italian restaurant this guy a he was he told me he's like this is if you can find a good riesling it's it takes so much care to make and when it's done right it really is fantastic and it it, it just uh was really amazing to hear you say the very same sentiments this guy was sharing. He, he, this guy's an expert, sommelier, yeah. the whole deal, and that's that's awesome, man. And this to so to have a good one. I'm really excited to try this right now. Yeah, yeah, give it a try. And when it comes to riesling, just a real quick kind of note: QBA is a qualitwine. That's a base level riesling. Cabernet is the next earliest picked, so it tends to be a little drier. Spätlese on the vine a little bit longer so when you're taking the water out you're increasing the sugar then auslesa then baron auslesa then truck and baron auslesa then ice wine ice wow. wine is super super desserty so cabinet spätlese you can kind of get away with with regular food thai food with riesling good lord you know that's that's a great that's a good combo right there oh fantastic yeah some really? spicy thai food yeah. And, and so what is this? this is what a, is this? Listen. Yeah, this, uh, you're this. you're drinking a QBA, Pete. Okay, so it's uh it's on the drier side. Just Less a little sweet. bit on the drier side, but you're gonna notice a good amount of pineapple fruit in that. Yeah. Oh man, I mean, it 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 almost tasted like champagne after yeah. Right, yeah. Out, right out right away. It was awesome. Uh, yeah. I mean, what do you guys it. think of the of the Rheingau, the Robert Vile? I'm enjoying. Oh, clean. And and Brian, what music would you pair with it? I guess it would have to be uh, the Scorpions, the German rockers who brought. No, it's, it's, it's <laughs> Jethro Tull. It's, it's Jethro Tull all day with Riesling. Yeah, yeah. let's get it's the flute out as a brick. <laughs> yeah, totally. What about the Winds of Change? Dude, you know what? We we are we are we are gonna we are gonna put a Spotify playlist. I dig it. Yeah, this one. nice. Now that we're talking about it, we have to. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to go into uh, comic books with um, with the red wines, too. I've, I've always, often thought that Wolverine is a very Syrah-like person, you know? So let's get a little <laughs> awesome. meta on that stuff. I love that. <laughs> oh, man, there, there's a whole world about... I mean, I have a million questions, especially when we get... In, when we do our next um, follow-ups with wines, but especially labeling and, and marketing and there's so much I want to know about this world. And this has been awesome, man. I mean, you know, I got to say both of you guys, you know, your stuff. I mean, Terry, your story is absolutely incredible. What you got there, Terry? So I was just going to show you a lot of the German Riesling bottles mm -hmm. will have um, the degree of sweetness. Yeah. And it'll show the different oh. levels. Oh. Understand the difference between spat laser, cabinet, um, and, and some don't, but, but many of them do have this 
And then you show them that degree of sweetness and explain to them because they'll come in and ask for Riesling and you, you ask them, do you want something that's sweet or medium sweet or drier? And, and sometimes they know and sometimes they don't. So you just sure. show them this and explain what spat laser means and cabinet means. And it gives them an idea as what to look for in the bottle when they open it up. 100%. Oh, that's awesome. Really friendly. That's, that's really, it's really cool too, to see the dynamic between the retail and distribution side and how you guys interact with each other. Cause you both have the, the knowledge about it, but you approach you're from a sales perspective, you're approaching it from a different thing. And that's a nuanced thing that a retailer would certainly, as you just pointed out, uh, no point out to us. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely when awesome. You're on the distribution side, you're selling to the on-premise and the off-premise, the restaurant and the, and the retail. And that's fine. But the ultimate in our industry, the ultimate is to get the bottle into the consumer's hands. Right. I eat sommelier that's at a restaurant. The ultimate is to get the, into the consumer's hands and let yeah. the consumer pick it up, feel it, and take it home, taste it. And you have given them a story and you have told them why they're going to like it and how much they're going to like it before they even open that bottle. So when yeah. they open that bottle, they, they're going to love it, whether they like it or not. And they're going to come back. Well, they're going to come back. Yeah. 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 They're always going to come it, back. It, it, it's interesting. Well, just if I may, just real, because I think about, you know, you know, my wife and I, we love to go out to dinner. We love to enjoy a bottle of wine. We love to have a conversation with the, with the in-house wine person and so many beautiful experiences are not necessarily the most expensive bottle or whatever. And I don't know, like thinking about if I put a sales hat on what, what this person was saying to me, but we, the experience was incredible and the wine did match what we were having as different our dishes were. And there is some, there is some skill, like you're saying, to put it into the person's hand, to give them the experience. It's so interesting that this this bottle has the power to have to have that to provide that experience for someone. And yeah. I mean, I, I love yeah, that we, we, we have the opportunity. It's synergistic, Pete. You know, you gotta the food is good, the wine is good, but the food and the wine together really create that third entity that people are looking for in a in a dining experience. And if you can have a, a really good psalm guiding you or, or somebody like Terry guiding you in the store, uh, it just adds so much. You know, it's, yeah. it's absolutely, uh, it's key, you know, and, and that helps to get depletions, which is the main thing, you know. And another thing just to touch on real quick, I know, I know we're probably, we're, we're just about out of time, but the, the other thing is, is that, you know, these wines, they're in like, I want to say, what, the $20 retail range, like. I, I think I think the whole the lot was about 120 bucks, you know, out here in LA, which is probably marked up, you know, KL Wines. You ever hear of that place? Yeah, KL Wine Merchants. They're huge. <laughs> That's where I got these wines. Nice. So, um, but uh, but it is worth it. I feel like to spend the extra if you're if you're out shopping for a bottle for yourself to spend the extra five bucks or even ten bucks. Then from a, the difference between a $15 bottle of wine to me and a $25 bottle of wine can be actually massive if you know a little something about it and you go to a special specialty store like Terry's, engage the conversation, to, to do yourself a favor, talk to someone like Terry. If you're in Connecticut, go to Terry's store, but 
you know, if you if you're near, if you're if you have that near you, it's well worth worth it to have the conversation. I think it'll make your experience that much better for whatever you're going for that night. You know, the consumers realize that we hear that all the time. They pay attention. They pay attention. They want to be sold. They want to be told. They want to learn, which is why I'm here. Uh, I think some people do. I don't know. I think some people are stuck in their ways too with their. Actually, say it's wonderful to be in a curated wine store because every other store that I go into, it's the same old crap. I would yeah. call this, your store. I, I tell people it's an emporium. I don't. That's true. It's not a store. It's this is not like to call what you have. It's not a liquor store. And by the I way, there. I hear that word. I know it's and it, by the way, guys, she also has an absolutely stunning um, um, variety of craft beers. Like when you walk by the windows, you just see all like the resplendent colors and it just like attracts you. Even though, I don't know if you meant to set it up that way, but when you walk by and you see all these cans, it's kind of like out of the old Scooby Doo uh, cartoons where they they smell the food and they like spin around on their heels and go back in. <laughs> like I can't leave without buying something, you know, and I can't, you know, That's key. yeah. Um, well, I, Pete, I know we're running out of time. We're going to come back. We will come back. Like the customer comes back. I hope the listeners come back and Brian real quick. I'm going to put you on the spot because one of our future episodes is about the Clifford ball. Were you at the Clifford ball? It was at the Clifford ball. I, uh, I, Nailed a bottle of Yukon Jack permafrost night one, and I was walking around with the moon bong uh, from tent to tent, just adding, asking people to, to contribute bong. to the funds, brother. You know, let's just say I had a sharpie with me, and some people put their names on that bad boy that night. That's yes, awesome. I was there for all three days, and it was insane. You remember well, who you rode into town with? I, it was high school friends of mine. So I was with Matt Guitar Murphy, who I went to high school with that you know from the Big Jim Blues Band. Yep. Um, and then right. two other guys that you guys are probably unfamiliar with, um, just Jeremy and Josh, uh, a couple of nice guys that I went to Shenandoah with. Because we were coming from Clifton Park up up north for that for that show. That wasn't Josh Friedman, was it? No, it was not Josh Friedman, no. But he probably tried to find his way in. It's a possibility, George. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. <laughs> Gentlemen, um, and, and on, on that note yeah we appreciate your time we'd like to come back and do uh another episode on uh the red wines and um thank you and um this is awesome guys. Yeah, thank you really very much i just i just got, got a little more riesling in my glass here i'm absolutely loving it. Cheers, <laughs> cheers to everybody on this one yeah, hey absolutely. terry um terry let's let's consolidate we'll we'll choose the wines together next time around for the reds yeah all right. Cheers, guys. Thanks we sign so it much. off.